0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Tim, and it's my privilege to continue with you in our series in James. If you want to take uh, your Bible or device and get to James chapter 2, verse 14, we're going to cover from 14 to verse 26, and as you're getting there, let me just begin with a story about a man named Richard Stearns. He was, in the prime of his life, a Christian executive that had worked his way uh, through the American corporate ladder to become the CEO of America's finest tableware company. And of course, that position brought with it all kinds of perks. Um, he had a beautiful 10-bedroom home for a family with five kids. He had a luxury car. He traveled all kinds of places in the world, uh, flying first class and then staying in the best hotels. He's well-respected in his community, great wife, great family, well-adjusted. He said he was pretty well the North American poster child for success in Christianity Until, until God messed it all up. At that time, there was an organization that ministered to the poor in the world and especially with child sponsorship, and their president was about to retire in one year's time, and so they're in a search process looking for who their next president is going to be, and through their due diligence and prayer, they determined that Richard Stern was their man, and so they approached him. He was uh, very negative towards the opportunity initially. And um, conversations began to happen. Richard knew that, that this, he wasn't fitted for this job. I mean, he had no experience in that field he knew it would meant a significant decrease in salary. That his family would have to move from where they were in the Philadelphia area to the West Coast to Bellevue, Washington. I mean, who wants to live on the West Coast where it rains all the time? He just wasn't interested. But a turning point happened when one of the search team asked him this question: "Are you willing to be open to God's will for your life? Are you willing to be open?" to God's will for your life. As Richard recounts his story, and yes, he eventually did say yes to the opportunity, he describes his struggle, his insecurities, his uh, struggle to uh, think about what it would cost himself and cost his family, and he talks about how it it has been a struggle to walk the talk. It was a struggle, and still is sometimes for him, to walk the the talk, And so as we look at the book of James, James is addressing that very thing, that we don't just be people who are Christian in what we profess, that we also are people who walk the talk. It seems in James' day there were people who were saying it really didn't matter how you lived your life or what you did, as long as you had faith, and James is correcting that this morning, it is important what you do. And James is going to show us that we are saved by faith, yes, but that faith is a genuine faith. Don't be deceived because real faith works. That's his point this morning, real faith works. We begin in James chapter 2, verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith, that is, they have a belief, they have a trust in God, but does not have works, that is, they don't express obedience and service to God... Can that faith save him? Salvation being God's uh, rescue, God's restoration, which begins to invade uh, our lives here on this earth but is experienced fully and completely at the end of our time as we know it here. Can that kind of faith that does not have works, can that save a person? Can they fully experience the salvation that God has for them? And this is a rhetorical question for James because the answer is, he gives is certainly not. And he is going to give us, as we walk through this text this morning, he's going to give us five examples to really prove his point. And so we begin with the first one. In James chapter 2, verse 15, he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace. That's like the Hebrew greeting, shalom, which uh, implies, you know, may you be well. May you have full health and everything go well for you. Go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? I mean, what does the person need? They, they need clothing. They need, they need something to eat. They need the basic necessities of survival. But all they're getting is talk. No action. And James says, what good is that? Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, when something is dead, it's, like, it's not very useful or effective for anything, is it? If you, and I hope this isn't prophetic, but if you walk out of church this morning and you go to your parking lot, to, to your car, and your battery is dead, That is going to be a problem, isn't it? I mean, your vehicle might be nice. It might be just washed, shiny. Uh, It might be a Christian car. It's very polite on your way. Uh, It came to church this morning. You have a fish symbol on the back. Um, everything's, Everything's nice. But if it doesn't work, if the battery's dead, if the car is dead, it's useless. It can't take you anywhere. And so James says... So it is with faith. If it abides without works, it is dead. Dead. Verse 18 He is going to give us our second. Uh, or sorry, he's going to have introduced somebody, uh, uh, an imaginary conversation partner. And this is a typical Greek form of communication. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works, James says. So this person has interjected that um, it's, the point the person is making is that it's, it's, it's all right for faith to exist and works to exist, and for those two things to be separate, that they can coexist and be actually separate from one another. One person may have faith, another person has works, and James says, no, no, it doesn't work that way. In fact, I can probably examine your faith, and if it's genuine, I will see works, James says, and I can show you my faith by my works. Second example we see in verse 19. James says, you believe that God is one. You believe that God is one, you do well. So what if your theology is really good? Is is that enough? What if if you have really great thinking? You, you, You understand the Bible quite clearly and your theology is right. James says, you believe that God is one. He's referring to the core of Jewish belief. And remember, this is the letter of James is written to the dispersion. So uh, probably primarily Jews who have been scattered out of Jerusalem. So he speaks to the very core of their theological thought. It's taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it talks about Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This was at the very core of, the, of Jewish fabric. They were to rehearse this. They were to talk about this when they're sitting with their children, when they're walking, when they're lying, when they get up. This was to be at the very heart. Jews still recite this today. The Lord your God is one. You shall love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's at the very core of their right thinking. Jesus, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? This is what he quoted. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is right thinking. You do well, but it's not enough. Dallas Willard says that faith today is treated as something that only should make us different. Not that actually does or can make us different. In reality, we vainly struggle against the evils of this world, waiting to die and to go to heaven. Somehow we've gotten the idea that the essence of faith is entirely a mental and inward thing. James says, faith needs to be more. Real faith works. It's interesting how James is going to illustrate that here. You've maybe already read it. You believe that God is one, you do well. What does he say? Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons have their theology right in that they understand that God is one. They have better thinking, better theology than a polytheist who believes in many gods. They have better thinking than an agnostic who doesn't know if God exists or if he can be known. They have better thinking than an atheist who doesn't believe God exists. If, if you say you have faith and you have no works, James say, is saying your belief system is no better than the demons. Now he's a shocker, isn't he? James speaks in such shocking ways. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. In Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 1, and, and throughout Mark's gospel, people are wondering, who is this Jesus? Um, who is he? Like, what is he about? And right in the beginning of Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 1, one of the demons says, I know who you are. He recognizes. They know. But they have absolutely no intention of being obedient to God and doing service to God. Their faith is not genuine. Their faith is not authentic. It's not real because it does not have works towards God. real faith works. James' example, number three, verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was it not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So James has already addressed the uh, Hebrew greeting, shalom. He's talked about the core of their theology And now he's going to talk about, like, the core person of Jewish faith, the father of their faith, Abraham. And in case you're not familiar with his story, let me go right back to the beginning of the Bible, in in the beginning, and see how he appears on the scene. So God creates humankind. Adam and Eve, they they are placed in a perfect garden. It's exactly what God wants, but they choose to rebel against God. This introduces all kinds of... bad things into our world and people are separated from God and, and it just goes uh, bad and it gets worse and worse. So God has to wipe out uh, society with Noah and, uh, and the ark. You've probably heard of the story of the flood and he's going to begin again. But again, humanity as it starts up again, it, it just goes from bad to worse. And so finally, God chooses a man through whom he's going to work his restoration. And his name is Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, he he, he approaches this man, Abram, who he's called at the time, Abram, and he, he, he chooses this man to be his, his agent of reconciliation in the world. And God says to him, I'm going to bless you, and through you, you're going to be my ambassador. Through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Through your offspring. Fast forward, and, and, and as God gives him that promise, God says, I want you to obey me now and go to a land that I will show you. doesn't even tell him where he's supposed to go yet. Just trust me and do it. Go to the land that I will show you. Now think about it. Abram is probably, well, he's in his 70s, and, and their life was a little bit different than ours is today. But like he's in he's in retirement zone. He's in RSP time where you begin to reap the the fruit of your your labors. Like he is old. And God comes and he completely interrupts his life and calls him to the most significant part of his life from there on in his 70s. Go to a land. I'm going to show you. Abram obeys, he's given the name Abraham eventually. We read a little bit further on in Genesis chapter 15. God encounters Abraham again and they have this conversation. And Abraham says to him, Hey, like what's going on? This promise you gave me. I have no child. Like, what's what's going on? God says, You will have a child. He will be your heir. He will be your offspring. And through him, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And God says, look at the stars in the sky. He says, if you can count them, if you can, that's what your offspring is going to be like. And Genesis 15 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. In other words, it was counted that he was right with God because of his faith, because he believed in God and that promised against all odds in his old age. In that moment, God counted him as right with God, righteous with God. And In the New Testament, Paul picks up on this to show us that we are saved, we are made right with God, not by anything we do, but by our faith. Fast forward into the story, and it's still going to be years, but... Abraham reaches a hundred years of age when God fulfills his promise that he has a son. He has a living son. Can you imagine the joy of the promise fulfilled and experiencing this after all that waiting and you trusted and you believed God and and here he is and he's named Isaac and, and it's just glorious. But the story's not over. And in a while... God is going to ask Abraham to do something so hard, so difficult. He says to him, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your your son Isaac, and I want you to go to the land of Moriah. I'm going to show you a mountain there. I want you to go up on that mountain, and I want you to sacrifice your son. Can you imagine what God is asking of that man? All his hopes, all his dreams... What he'd yearned for, fulfilled, and now God is asking him to give it all up. Now, when we, we read that in the Old Testament, we go, wow, that's really strange. Like, why would God ask that of Abraham? We've got to understand, in the context of, of Abraham's life and the nations around him, it was not unusual at all for people in their worship of the gods trying to earn their God's favor that they would sacrifice their children, to that God to earn the God's favor, especially the firstborn, like the prized one. They would sacrifice that child to earn God's favor. God is simply testing Abraham to see, do you love me? Are you committed to me as much as the people around you are committed to their gods? So it says, after God asks this of Abraham, immediately he goes, and he goes to the place, to Moriah, where he's called to, he takes his son, they ascend the mountain. He builds an altar. He binds up his son. And he takes a knife and in obedience, he's going to do exactly what God has asked him to do. And in that moment, an angel cries out and says, Abraham, don't do it. We read in James chapter 2, verse 22, Or 21, was it not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Let's remember that Abraham was already proclaimed righteous in Genesis chapter 15. You see that faith, verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness that he was called the friend of God. What James is saying is that work of, uh, of Abraham, to obey God, to be willing to sacrifice his son. What was proclaimed to him in Genesis chapter 15, the scripture, that it was, he was counted to him as righteousness, that is fulfilled in his activity and being willing to sacrifice his son. His work showed that his faith was genuine. Because real faith works. Now, when we read Scripture, it's really good for us to uh, think about, as we're reading Scripture, is there another Scripture that affirms what I'm reading? Is there another Scripture that says, seems to say something different? This is a really healthy way to read Scripture, so that we don't just cherry-pick verses that we like, but we let Scripture, in a sense... We, we let it wrestle with us as to what is the full truth. How does it, how does it fully work out? James has said the startling, startling statement that Abraham was justified by his works. Paul says emphatically, we are never justified by works. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, By grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. What is going on here? Paul is addressing people who were very uh, big on works. They had elevated works to the place where works was big and faith was less important. James is addressing people who had elevated faith, but who thought that works were immaterial to that faith. In fact, maybe that works didn't need to exist at all, that they don't coexist. James is addressing self-righteousness and legalism. Sorry, Paul is addressing self-righteousness and legalism. James is addressing complacency. He's addressing apathy. They work together. Both are true. We are saved by faith alone, but genuine, real faith, James says, works and proves that faith to be real. It's interesting, the, the great reformer, Luther, who is known that you known that we are saved by faith alone. He called the epistle of James straw. But if you read some of his writings, he is saying the exact same thing that James is in his preface into the book of Romans. Luther writes that a living, busy, active, mighty thing is this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. It never asks whether good works are to be done. It has done them before the question can be asked and is always doing them. Whoever does not do such works is an unbeliever. He's saying the exact same thing that James says. Real faith works. One more example. In verse 25, we read, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. You might be familiar with this story. The, the nation of Israel under Joshua's leadership are moving into the, the land that God had promised them. So they sent some spies to check out the city of Jericho. And while they're there, uh, the people of Jericho... Uh, must have got word of it. They want to find them and kill them. And Rahab, the prostitute, believing that God, is, is the God of Israel, is in charge and control and is powerful because she believes that, she hides the two spies and they live. And James uses this example to remind us that she also, her, her, her works showed that her faith was genuine. And in that together, she is justified. She is declared as right with God and included in the genealogy of Jesus. I love that example because it shows us that a person like can be new to the faith. Like just a very basic raw belief in God. They can be undesirable. She's a woman, and and, and many of the Jewish men look down on women. She's a prostitute. She's like of the worst occupation in the Jewish mind. James is showing us what really matters, as we talked about last week, you know, blow away all all the barriers between people. What really matters is our faith genuine, and does it respond to God in works? of obedience and service to him. One more, James has an example in verse 26. He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's just be really clear. When that spirit exits a body, like that body is dead. And so it is with faith. Real faith works. If it's not accompanied by, if faith is not accompanied by works, it is dead. And, and God's intention for us is to have a living, active, vibrant faith that brings us life and brings life to everyone around us. In John chapter 7, Jesus talks about this. He says in verse 38, he that believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I believe it's a picture of, the, of what Ezekiel saw when he saw the, the river flowing from the throne of God and wherever it went, it brought life. So it is when we believe in God, that faith is meant to, to bring us just overflowing abundance and life from within, but not just for our own nourishment and, and vibrancy, but it spills out into the, all the relationships that we exist in, our family, our friends, our neighborhood. Where we work, our church. Faith apart from works is dead, or to say it in a positive way, real faith works. As we begin to close this morning, let's remember that James is addressing complacency that existed in his day, and I think still exists in our day. You've heard the phrases uh, I said the prayer, I was born in, in a Christian home, that should be good enough. Um, been there, done that, you know, I, I yeah, I was a, much more alive to God in the past, but yeah, I'm just coasting now, or it doesn't really matter how I live, like, grace will cover it all. Um, James wants us to, to get past that. In the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to the church in Sardis, and he, he says to them, I know your works, like, I've, I've, I'm looking at your works, like, this matters, You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Turn turn around. Like, let's, let's get this right. And if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Like, let's just make this right. So let's let Jesus, let's let James speak to those areas in our life where we may tend towards complacency. And let's ask ourselves the question, am I, are we willing to be open to, to what God has for us? Are, are we willing to be open to God's will for us? And, and here's how it works, I think. And the way that God invites us to, to walk with him and to, obedient, to be obedient with him is We look at our circumstances, like what is God presenting right in front of us? James' first example was a poor person presented themselves, and there they are. What is God presenting in our lives? What are the circumstances that that he's presenting before us where he's asking us to respond? Or as we look at his word, and we're in prayer, we're in a conversation with God, and, and that's why this is so important to be in his word. What is God saying to you as you read his scripture where his divine will is placed. What is he saying to you as you have a relationship with him in prayer? Where is he inviting you? You see, <clears throat> it's important that you 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 see where God is inviting you because I mean, you could go crazy thinking of all the needs in the world and all the things that can be done and I got to work, I got to work, I got to work. No, just remember it's not about that. You are made right with God. You're declared righteous. But where is God asking you to respond to that righteousness? What is he inviting you into? And there will be obstacles. There's gonna be things that that feel like a barrier you're gonna have to push through. On the day that Richard Stearns flew to Seattle to check out the organization that was asking him to be their president, on that very morning, a businessman came into his office and proposed to him a, a, a business opportunity whereby he would almost immediately be worth another 25 to 50 million dollars more in his net worth. But Richard decided to push through that. The cost, the inconvenience, his insecurities What are your obstacles? And do we believe enough in the God of Scripture to say yes and move through those obstacles to reach that place of flourishing and blessing that God has for you and wants for you? Just as Abraham was called the friend of God, his obedience led to this amazing place of flourishing and blessing. So as we listen to God, as we, as we enter into that place he's inviting us and as we obey and as we serve him and we move through the obstacles that are in front of us, it leads us to a place of flourishing. But not just for ourselves, it leads us to a place where because of what God is doing in our lives, it blesses those around us. That's the picture that he has for us. This morning we get to celebrate communion. And I think how appropriate to, as, a, as a conclusion to what we've been looking at this morning in the book of James. You see, the story of Abraham points very clearly to the person of Jesus Christ. Abraham told his son Isaac, when Isaac asked him, like, Dad, where's the sacrifice? He said, God himself will provide a lamb, and he certainly did. Centuries later in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we are told in Philippians chapter 2, humbled himself before the Father, and he himself was obedient, even to the point of death, to die on a cross. And because of Jesus' obedience, because of Jesus' faith in the Father and his obedience, his works, because he was willing to go to the cross, and because death could not hold him, and he rose from the dead for our forgiveness and our justification so that God can declare you and I right with God simply by believing in Him. No works, nothing we can boast in, but by believing. But that genuine faith then works because we've been so greatly loved. We've been so greatly privileged. How could we not? As we celebrate communion this morning, let's, let's just revel in the sacrifice and the obedience of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, that you and I can now be called the sons and daughters and friends of God through what he has done. So if you're not familiar with communion, basically uh, it's an ordinance that Jesus gave his disciples just before he went to the cross. And he transformed a regular meal that they had called the Passover. And he said the bread that they were eating represented his body, which would be broken for them. The cup they would drink represents the blood that he would shed for them. And that those who believe in Jesus were to do this in remembrance of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Knowing that it brought them their salvation, it took care of their past, their present, and gave them great hope as it gives us for the future, a life in eternity with a God who loved us and loves us that much. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we just invite you into that. And we would love to share with you further um, how you can come into that relationship and then walk with Jesus. But if you're not there yet, you can let these elements just pass by. But if, if you want to say yes to Jesus this morning, we invite you to participate with us. I'm going to ask the servers to come forward. They're going to distribute the elements. Please just hold them together. And when everybody has them, we will take communion as one family.